0: week three this morning i said it was week four it was the final week and i was corrected there's still one more week to go we are in week three of a series on the holy spirit this is a series that matt wilcoxson put together and has been uh, preaching up until now he is in allegedly a conference in california hanging out with N.T. Wright. But I think he asked me to preach for him while he was gone this particular week. Um, and I said yes before he told me which passage it was. I don't know if any one of you noticed the First Corinthians passage. That's our New Testament reading tonight. But I think he asked me, got, to, got me to say yes, and then fled town. And so uh, I just want that to be on the record. We're recording, right? Let's pray before we get started. Father, we pray for your presence, your guidance, your voice with us tonight. Speak to us through your word and meet us where we are at in Jesus name. Amen. It was a seminary class that I will never forget. I was in my first year at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and taking a class with Wayne Grudem. We were using parts of his systematic theology, which had not been published yet. And so he would uh, print copies of it off of his computer as he wrote it. The class was an elective called Theology of Prayer and Worship. And the last unit of the class was on praying For healing. And he said, Next Tuesday, I'm going to bring in a guest lecturer who has had some experience in praying for healing to talk about this topic. And I thought to myself, Well, this ought to be interesting. I considered myself to be what is known as a cessationist, which is the belief that any kind of miraculous spiritual gifts ceased after the apostles in the first century church. But I also had high regard for my teacher, Dr. Grudem, who was a steady and reliable Reformed theologian, and I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. So next Tuesday, we all walked into class, and our guest lecturer was Dr. Grudem's pastor, whose name was Steve Nicholson. I don't know what I expected of someone who was about to talk about healing prayer, but I felt reassured to find a low-key individual who presented a biblical and nuanced case for praying for healing. After his presentation, he said, because the gap for many people is knowing how to pray for healing, let's do a demonstration. Is there anyone here in class who is experiencing some stomach pain right now and to my surprise the guy seated in the desk next to me raised his hand and said I do he described an ailment that kept him in reoccurring pain from time to time and he was in pain right then and so Steve invited him to the front of the room to be prayed for and instructed the rest of the class to watch so my classmate a quiet conservative fellow, training to be an evangelical free church pastor, walked to the front and closed his eyes while Steve put his hand on my classmate's shoulder and with his other hand stuck in his pocket, prayed one of the least dramatic prayers I had ever heard in my life. Something like, Jesus, we ask you to release your healing power now. And that was it. He stood there for a few minutes, and we all waited. What followed was easily the most bizarre experience of my three years in seminary. After about two minutes, my classmate started quietly but unmistakably vibrating from head to toe. not shaking, vibrating, and my face looked like all of your faces right now. (laughs) I thought, what is going on? And does my friend know what's happening? Is he aware of this? Does he approve of this? Does his denomination approve of this? Thankfully, right about that moment, Steve started interviewing him, asking him what was happening. And my classmate said, in a very matter-of-fact tone of voice, well, I'm vibrating. (laughs) And he went on to describe more of what he was experiencing, saying that he felt like there were volts of electricity running up and down his body and that it felt strange but not painful. This went on for a few more minutes, and then it subsided. And as he slowly walked back to his seat, Steve asked him how his stomach felt, if the pain was still there, and he said, it feels fine. Well, I did not know what to make of this. But I suddenly felt glued to my seat thinking I want this guy to pray for me by this point class had officially ended but Steve had offered to stick around afterwards to pray for anyone and so I sat there trying to think up a reason for him to pray for me And as a card-carrying cessationist, I didn't know how these things worked. But I assumed I had to be sick in order to be prayed for. And so I suddenly remembered that I had had a cold a few weeks earlier. (laughs) And these things can stick around much longer than one thinks. And so I would have him pray for that sort of retroactive prayer. So I found Steve near the front of the room, told him I'd been feeling under the weather, and asked him to pray for me. So just my, like my classmate, I stood there and he put his hand on my shoulder, waited for a moment, and then he never did pray for my cold. He was simply quiet for a few moments, and then he said, you've been praying a lot lately. And this was true. I had gone straight from college to seminary, and over the last year or so, in my senior year of college and first year in seminary, God had been doing a deep work in my heart, stirring up a much deeper longing for him and a dissatisfaction with what I had known of Christianity up until that point. And over the last several months since arriving at seminary in Chicago, I would take prayer walks every night after dark walking the same route night after night, pouring out my heart to God, praying for the same things over and over. And so when Steve said, you've been praying a lot lately, I thought to myself, that's right. But then to my surprise, Steve started naming for me very specifically the precise prayers that I had been praying every night over the last six months. And as he was recounting my prayers, my mind was racing because I thought, how do you know this? And then he stopped and he said, and God wants you to know something. He's heard those prayers. And when he said that, I felt like my heart was going to burst. I had come from a tradition in which God was more of a distant rule maker than a loving father. And the fact that a complete stranger was able to recite to me my prayers and then assure me that God had heard those prayers, I was suddenly conscious for the first time and in a tangible way of God's goodness and mercy. In the months that followed, my spiritual life changed dramatically. I had a deeper longing for holiness and a greater dedication to prayer and a new expectancy about the immediacy of God. It became a kind of pivot point in my life, all because of a short prayer from somebody that I had never met before. Steve later became a friend and a mentor, and he would later say that he had no idea whether what he was saying to me would, in fact, be accurate. He was just following some small nudges that he felt from the Holy Spirit. Our New New Testament passage today is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can turn there if you have your... Bibles. It's a passage about spiritual gifts, and the majority of the gifts listed here, like healing and miracles and words of knowledge, appear to have some supernatural component to them. And because of that, a passage such as this can be challenging to preach from, because so many of us do not come to this passage in a neutral way. Many of us come with experiences or perceptions that make it hard to engage in a way that's straightforward some of us read this passage having had an experience similar to something i just narrated where god has met us and moved us forward towards himself and i am constantly amazed by the number of christians i meet uh, over the number of years from many different traditions and backgrounds who have stories of encountering God in ways they can't explain, but that have resulted in their movement towards Christ. Others of us, perhaps many of us, come to this passage as Westerners who have been shaped by the paradigms of rationalism and empiricism, and we find ourselves uncomfortable with anything that can't be explained in scientific or empirical ways. Some of us come from Christian traditions, similar to the one in which I was raised, which taught that miraculous gifts are not for today, and so it is hard for us to believe that a passage like this could have any kind of application in the present. And still others of us have been in contexts in which the role of spiritual gifts have been misused, sometimes in ways that are simply immature and sometimes in ways that are extremely damaging. Some of us have been taught that people who are not healed do not have enough faith. Some of us have seen certain spectacular gifts or people with those gifts elevated over everything else. Some of us have heard unbiblical or simply crazy things predicted about the future or overly directive guidance for people's lives delivered as though they were words from the Lord. Quite frankly, for anyone who has been exposed or subjected to this kind of misuse under the guise of spiritual gifts, it is entirely understandable that one wants to keep some distance. And so let me simply say from the outset, whatever concerns or reactions you come to with this passage, it's okay. There are so many questions that are valid and necessary and should be addressed. Most of them, for reasons of time, cannot be addressed in one sermon such as this, but my hope is that we can at least set the table for a conversation by exploring just a few themes from this passage. So looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the first thing I want us to notice here is that when Paul starts to teach the Corinthians about spiritual gifts, he does so by laying down a first principle that guides what is to come. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Before the Corinthians were following Christ, they followed mute idols. And when Paul says in verse 2, however you were led, he's really asking a kind of sarcastic question. How is it that you were actually led? Because idols are mute. And what's the opposite of being mute? It's speaking. So before Paul begins talking about spiritual gifts, he reminds the Corinthians that the God they worship speaks, he interacts, he guides, he leads them in real and participative ways. One of the defining features of the God of Israel is that he speaks. God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. God spoke to Abraham and told him to go to a place that I will show you. God spoke to Moses repeatedly from the burning bush to Mount Sinai. God spoke to Jesus, giving him the spirit without measure. And then before his ascension, Jesus told his disciples, I am going to send you the spirit and he will guide you into all truth. And he will give you the words that you need when you need them. Throughout the early church, we see the spirit speaking and guiding Acts 16 says that Paul and Silas were forbidden by the Spirit to preach the gospel in Asia. And on another occasion, it says that the Spirit of Jesus prevented them from going to Bithynia as well. Throughout the scripture, God speaks to his people. And therefore, in verse 3, Paul talks about believers in Jesus speaking in the Spirit of God. Verse 3, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you, Paul tells the Corinthians, you are no longer in temples led by mute idols. You're now Christians, and the church is a place of the Spirit's activity and guidance. Now, in verses 4 to 7, Paul is now going to bring some correction to the Corinthians, as he often does. It seems that the Spirit's activity in the Corinthian church had resulted in people emphasizing some gifts over others, especially gifts that seemed more spectacular. And as a result, there were increasing divisions and jealousy in the church. And so in verse 4, he tells them that spiritual gifts that are being exercised rightly will do just the opposite of creating division and jealousy. He writes, there are varieties of gifts, verse 4, but the same Spirit, and varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. Later in verse 25, Paul writes that the purpose of spiritual gifts is that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. The purpose of spiritual gifts is that members of Christ's body care for each other, produce Christ-likeness in each other, and push each other that much closer to Jesus. The test of the right exercise of spiritual gifts, whether those gifts are visible or hidden, is whether they are producing spiritual fruit in the lives of others. Now, when we get to verse 8, things get a bit trickier. Because up until now, Paul has been talking about varieties of service in the broadest of senses, but he now begins to talk about gifts that clearly seem to go beyond everyday human abilities. In verse 8, he writes, For to one is given, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, variety, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, I should remind us that this is not the only list of spiritual gifts in Scripture. In other letters, Paul lists spiritual gifts that include non-supernatural gifts like teaching or showing mercy or helping others or exercising administration. And even in this passage here in 1 Corinthians 12, we could have a useful conversation about whether all the gifts here listed are miraculous or not. What's the difference between what Paul here calls an utterance of wisdom or an utterance of knowledge versus a prophecy versus the ability to distinguish between spirits? It would appear that Paul's readers know what he's talking about because he doesn't explain them. But by the time we get to gifts such as healing and miracles, we are clearly in the realm of gifts that go beyond standard human ability. And we should note, perhaps to our discomfort, that Paul does not downplay these gifts. He simply acknowledges them as matters of fact. But even if he does not deny them, by the time we get to verse 8, he has already resituated them, placing them in a larger context of ministry in the body, with all gifts being equal to build up Christ-likeness. Several weeks ago, I was with one of the bishops in our diocese, Bishop Ndudu, who seven years ago had to escape with his life from South Sudan, where the president was trying to kill him. And he is now part of one of our sister churches in Harrisonburg, Virginia, Church of the Incarnation, and supports refugee and immigrant congregations across our diocese. The other week, I was with him. And I asked him, how are Muslims coming to Christ in your country? How are Muslims coming to Christ more broadly in Africa? And the very first story he told me was about a young Muslim woman in their village who was very sick. And another young woman in his congregation prayed for her and she was healed. She has this gift, he said. He shrugged his shoulders. And then, he said, she had the young Muslim woman come and live with her. So that she could care for her other needs. The Muslim woman came to Christ because of healing and hospitality. The miraculous and everyday service. So the question before us and before any church that wants to be biblical, therefore, is this. If we do not want to deny the reality of miraculous gifts, if we want to welcome God's active presence in our midst, but if we want to situate those gifts, as Paul does, in an understanding of church that is focused on building each other towards Christ-likeness, what does that look like? What does a careful and loving and balanced expression of the activity of the Holy Spirit look like today? Let me make three observations. First, it's important to note something about the meaning of spiritual gifts, both here in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere. We think of gifts as being something synonymous with abilities. Like we would say, he or she is a gifted piano player or gifted writer. And understood in this way, spiritual gifts are like talents which can be developed, but you either have them or you don't. And it's tempting to read the text in this way, to presume that spiritual gifts are things that God doles out like he does talents. And a lucky few get gifts like healing and miracles, and the rest of us get gifts like administration Furthermore, when we think of spiritual gifts in this way, it's a very short step towards believing that these gifts can be revealed with spiritual gifts tests, kind of like strengths finders 2.0, but for Christians. (laughs) And some people take these tests and discover they have the gift of apostleship, even though they aren't sure what that is or that it's even allowed. And they start speaking up at Bible study a bit more. And perhaps another person discovers that Though they have the gift of leadership, they don't have the gift of helps. And so now this person who wasn't very helpful to begin with now has biblical justification for it. (laughs) I don't know if anyone here remembers on Saturday Night Live, this is back in the 90s, Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. Anyone? And one of my favorite, it's, it's, it's these sort of curious observations about life intoned over a tranquil scene. One of my favorites is this. To me, it's always a good idea to carry two sacks of something when you walk around. That way, if anybody says, hey, can you give me a hand? You can say, sorry, got these sacks. (laughs) A spiritual gifts inventory somehow functions in this way. You have these sacks, And I'm sorry, I can't be helpful, I have these sacks. Or if you need something, I look inside and that particular gift just isn't there, regardless of what situation God might be calling you into. I think this is a wrong way to understand what is meant by gift in this passage. I want to suggest, following other biblical commentators, that we understand spiritual gifts not as some kind of static abilities, whether those abilities seem more natural or supernatural, but rather as ministries, as activities that build up the body of Christ. And those ministries or activities might be something that we are empowered by God to do consistently over time because of the role God calls us to, or they might be activities we are empowered to do simply in a given moment. Sometimes these activities will draw on natural abilities that we have to varying degrees, and other times those activities will require what we might call special enablement from the Holy Spirit, because they go beyond what we can do naturally. So there may be those who are called to teaching roles in the church with varying degrees of natural teaching ability, but the Holy Spirit empowers them for that role. And there may be someone who does not think of themselves at all as a teacher and yet may find themselves in a situation in which God calls and empowers them to teach in that moment. And it produces fruit in the lives of others. Similarly, it is possible that someone prays for another person for healing and God heals them. But that does not necessarily mean the person who prayed is now a healer. They were simply performing a ministry for which the Spirit was empowering them in that moment. Understanding spiritual gifts as activities versus abilities rescues us from the temptation to rank them on a kind of spiritual resume as the Corinthians were doing. Instead, I want to suggest it democratizes them. And in principle, makes them all available to all believers in different contexts and at different times, depending on what God is doing and what the Spirit is empowering to produce maturity in the body of Christ. My second observation is this once we have decentered spiritual gifts from being goodies that God doles out of his talents bag we are no longer required to view them through the static lenses of supernatural versus natural, but can view all of them instead as situated within the deeper, more mysterious structures of the universe. That was not meant as a deep thought from Jack Handy, so let me explain what I mean and stay with me for a moment as we make a sort of philosophical point that I think is important. In writing about the reality of miracles, the theologian and former Archbishop Rowan Williams suggests that it might be constructive to understand miracles not so much as God intervening to suspend the laws of nature. Rather, miracles reveal that the laws of nature are in fact much more complex than we think. He writes that we should think of miracles as less about, quote, God watching something going on down there and occasionally thinking, oh, I'd better fiddle around with that a bit or I'd better intervene there. And rather that miracles are those sets of circumstances in which somehow the underlying action of God breaks through to the surface. Elsewhere, Williams says this. C.S. Lewis Has that extraordinary account in one of his letters of praying to experience his wife's suffering in her last illness and being promptly crippled with the pains in the bone marrow that his wife was going through. He writes, Sometimes prayer lets God in. To believe in creation at all, he says, is to believe in that sort of relation between God and creation, which does not provide a neat distance between God and us. Total difference, and yet not a distance. And the hard thing talking about all of this, he says, is coming to terms with what it means. Here's my take on this. I sometimes wonder if our conversations about Charismatic versus non-charismatic or natural versus supernatural are trapped in overly binary 19th century models of reality. What we think of as Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement are rooted in certain historical events in the 20th century, such as the Azusa Street Revival in the early part of the 20th century or the Jesus Movement in the 1960s and 70s. Let's thank God for all the fruit that came from those movements. But let's also recognize that all such movements are culturally and historically conditioned. Going forward, might it be possible to operate consciously in the presence of God, in our own lives of prayer, in our ministry to each other, such that we intentionally welcome and expect God's activity in our midst? but that we do so in ways that might not be packaged as charismatic? Might we embed them in everyday Christian practices such as contemplative prayer, the liturgy, the sacraments, and in loving and intentional Christian conversation? There are deep resources in the church for doing this, I think, going all the way back to the church fathers. Which leads me to my third and final point, which is to consider practically what all of this might mean. And here I want to suggest two things. First, I think that the work of God's spirit, God's activity among us, will be a more common occurrence when we learn to look for it and take risks in expressing it. Let me give an example. I'm currently reading a wonderful book by Stephen Mews, a Christian therapist who has written several books about the intersection of psychology and spirituality. He writes about how frequently the Holy Spirit will play a role in his counseling appointments if he is attentive to nudges from the Holy Spirit. He writes of one such occurrence by saying, once with a woman in crisis whom I had seen only a couple of times, I made a statement about something missing in her life and then felt the quietest nudge within me that led me to add one more thing. I do not believe in 20 years of counseling I have ever before used the word that I was about to say in therapy. Following this subtle nudge, I added, and be sure that what I'm saying reaches the little caboose. the woman responded instantaneously and with surprise. Caboose is the nickname that I was called as a small child. And that moment opened her up to a much deeper level of work, both in her therapy and in her own engagement with the Lord. I think these nudges are more common than we might think. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us through each other by learning to pay attention to those nudges. Learning to discern what is the Holy Spirit's nudge versus what is my own agenda takes practice and teaching and maturity and discernment but if we will learn to practice God's presence and learn to recognize his voice in our own lives, it is a small step to being a channel for the Holy Spirit's voice in the lives of others. My other practical suggestion is this. As Anglicans, we have rubrics and frameworks that create space for this. The Book of Common Prayer has services for healing. And these allow for prayers that are both liturgical and extemporaneous. As Anglicans, we celebrate the Eucharist every week. And we come to the table to receive from Jesus, understanding that in some deep and mysterious way, Jesus is the host, Jesus is present, and Jesus gives us himself in the bread and the wine. And so come to the table with expectancy. Come to be prayed for by the prayer ministers after you receive the bread and the wine. Come believing that God wants to meet with you and speak to you. Furthermore, not only do we have the liturgy and the sacraments, but we have community groups. We have small groups, res groups, that can be places for experimenting and risk-taking. With opportunities to listen to God for each other on each other's behalf and ministering to each other at our deepest points of need. In much of what we read in the New Testament about spiritual gifts, including 1 Corinthians 12, it is assumed that these gifts will be practiced in house church settings. And res groups are a perfect place for this to happen. What does the Holy Spirit want to do at church of the resurrection that is always the perennial question for us and for every church first corinthians 12 tells us that the holy spirit wants to be active wants to guide us wants to minister to us in ways that are both mundane and miraculous we should welcome that But what he most wants to produce is Christ-likeness. He wants to transform us. And to that we can always say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.